Hello, and welcome back to the Economic Review. President Biden has just unveiled a new $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan, but a shockingly large portion of this bill is actually unrelated to infrastructure. The plan includes massive subsidies for corporations as well as state and local governments, and comes right after the administration's proposed increase in the corporate tax rate. So, there's $300 billion for manufacturing, $100 billion for electric utilities, $100 billion for broadband, $174 billion for electric vehicles, and a whole lot more. A significant portion of this spending is directed at subsidizing massive corporations. What the plan overlooks is that corporations are already investing heavily in the industries that they're aiming to subsidize. For example, companies like Tesla and Volkswagen have invested billions of dollars into developing electric automobiles and charging infrastructure. Biden's plan would aim to influence consumer spending decisions through the creation of further incentives for such vehicles. In other words, these companies would see their profits boosted as a result of artificially increased demand. The same goes for Verizon and T-Mobile that have invested in broadband, and Mitsubishi and Simons that have invested in wind energy. Subsidizing multi-billion dollar corporations and pumping up their profits is corporate welfare, not an infrastructure plan. The private sector built hundreds of thousands of gas stations across the country, and if there is demand for it, they will do the same with charging stations for electric vehicles. A federal takeover of business investment decisions in this manner will inevitably have repercussions. The Biden administration has included $100 billion to decarbonize the U.S. electric grid, essentially eliminating coal and natural gas, alongside $213 billion for affordable housing, $400 billion to bolster home health care, and so on. Despite President Biden's push for bipartisanship, political spending runs rampant throughout many of his plans. This bill is full of such spending and has, that has no, virtually nothing to do with infrastructure. Let's just take a few examples. Firstly, the Biden infrastructure plan includes another $100 billion for new public school, schools and making school lunches greener. The proposal reads, funds will also be provided to improve our school kitchens so that they can be used to better prepare nutritious meals for our students and go green by reducing or eliminating the use of paper plates and other disposable materials. Secondly, there is also $25 billion for government childcare programs to help upgrade childcare facilities and, and increase the supply of childcare in areas that need it most. According to the White House, funding would be provided through a child care growth and innovation fund for states to build a supply of infant and toddler care in high-need areas. Thirdly, there's several billion dollars to eliminate racial and gender inequalities in STEM programs. Finally, there's $20 billion to, quote, advance racial equity and environmental justice. The proposal states, quote, a new program that will connect neighborhoods cut off by historic investments and ensure new projects, increase opportunity, advance racial equity and environmental justice, and, quote, promote affordable access. These are just a few examples among countless other instances of political spending in this bill. As the Foundation for Economic Education put it, the list totals hundreds of billion billions of dollars in waste and unrelated partisan spending, 
slipped into the Biden administration's expensive infrastructure plan. But it should be stressed that this list is far from exhaustive. By the time this proposal is translated into hundreds of pages of legislation, if not thousands, and subjected to Congress's and lobbyists' influence, there will no doubt be even more waste and partisan policy slipped into it. Yes, there is serious debate about the state of American infrastructure and the proper role of the federal government in addressing its deficiencies. However, this plans more than $2 trillion in pro- of this plans more than $2 trillion in proposed spending. Just $621 billion goes to, quote, transportation, infrastructure, and resilience. That's right. Just roughly one-third of the money goes to kinds of, the kinds of spending people would usually associate with infrastructure, like repairing roads and bridges, as well as modernizing public transport, transit. This plan comes right on the heels of Biden's proposed corporate tax hikes. The current administration is betting that the damage caused by jacking up taxes will be outweighed by the massive amount of federal spending in this proposal. As the president of the Tax Foundation, Scott A. Hodge, put it, quote, based on the Congressional Budget Office's assessment of the economic and budgetary effects of federal investment, there is no reason to believe that the economy will be better off with such a trade. The CBO estimates that $2 trillion in federal spending will yield about $1.3 trillion in actual investment. Since government investment only results in half the returns of private investment, we would be much better off if the $2 trillion in corporate tax increases that Biden needs to fund his plan were left in the hands of the private sector. The impact of corporate tax cuts versus hikes on real tax revenue as well as investment has been widely explored. Tax cuts are not aimed at enabling wealth to trickle down to everyone. Rather, it seeks to increase tax revenue. For example, if a burger store makes a gross profit of $1,000 a year while paying a corporate tax rate of 40%, they only get to reinvest $600 into the business, and the other $400 would go towards taxes. If that rate were slashed to 20%, the business owner would get to spend an extra $200 on hiring new workers, buying new machinery, and marketing the business. That year, the business's returns will inadvertently increase. If it eventually returns a higher gross profit, say $3,500, paying a 20% tax of $700, the government earns more money than when the business paid 40% or equivalent to $600. Despite a tax reduction, more capital has been put to work, with insur- has, which has ensured that the government's total tax revenue was much greater. Economists across the political spectrum widely accept this idea. Even Keynes stated that taxation may be so high as to defeat its objective, that in the long run, a reduction of the tax rate will run a better chance than an increase of balancing the budget. In the early 1920s, when the tax rate for those earning above $100,000 was 73%, the total amount of tax revenue the government received from such earners was $210 million. When this tax rate was cut to 24%, the government received over $650 million from earners making over six figures. The reason for this was quite simple. It was now possible for investors to get higher returns by investing their money outside of tax shelters. By slashing tax rates, not only did investors make more money, but so did the government. It was a win-win for everybody. 
and it was achieved without government intervention in the market. Over the last half century, tax revenue as a percentage of GDP has remained stagnant at approximately 17%, regardless of tax rates. Over this period, the top marginal income tax rate has fluctuated between 30 and 90%. The minimum capital tax minimum capital gains tax rate has fluctuated between 20 and 40%. The average effective corporate tax rate, likewise, has fluctuated between 20 and 45%. Regardless of all these changes, not one of them has actually increased or decreased tax revenue as a percentage of GDP by any substantial amount whatsoever. No matter what we change the rate to, 50 years of experimentation between extreme highs and lows has shown us that the government cannot improve GDP by raising tax rates. It can only boost the GDP by cutting them, thereby making the tax revenue as high as possible. If the administration wants to fund this plan, the best way to do so would be to cut $2 trillion in other unnecessary, wasteful spending. As Hodge writes, quote, the CBO modeled two identical scenarios but with the assumption that the cost of the new federal investment was offset by other cut, by cuts in other discretionary spending. Each of these scenarios led to sustained productivity and economic growth because the investment was not encumbered by higher federal borrowing. Moreover, the higher levels of productivity and economic output resulted in a smaller federal deficit. The current plan would be a massive circular flow of revenue from increased corporate taxes going towards subsidies on large companies, ultimately decreasing investment and long-term capital formation. As federal spending increases to unprecedented levels, state and local governments become nothing more than the administrators of a giant national government. Bureaucracies are notoriously inefficient, and bolstering them even further will only exacerbate these effects. The expenses and delays involved in connecting trillions of dollars in additional corporate taxes, running them through Washington, and eventually using them to finance countless programs only serve as further discouragement against pursuing such a plan. Overall, a thorough analysis of this proposal re reveals that it would ultimately do more harm than good. In addition to the high levels of political spending and unnecessary intervention in business investment decisions, this plan would be a burden on the economy, reducing investment, growth, and prosperity over the long run. Thank you so much for tuning into the Economic Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.